1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. My name is David Law. I'm a tennis commentator for BBC Radio 5 Live and BT Sport and also the media director of the Aegon Championships at the Queen's Club and I'm joined by Catherine Whitaker, also a tennis broadcaster and someone who has hot-footed it from working at Roland Garros to the Queen's Club, where we now sit in a deserted media centre where it is very much the calm before the storm. In a few days' time, hundreds of journalists, photographers, broadcasters will arrive to what is effectively uh, a number of converted squash courts in the Queen's Club to cover the first grass court tennis tournament of the year. But first, Catherine, as we sit here on Friday night trying to digest the day's tennis in Paris, we've arrived at exactly the final we all expected. Or at least, I expected.
1: You you pressured me into into a prediction. I knew you were predicting, you know, the boring old... Nadal Nadal Djokovic so accuracy. I, so I thought, oh, you know, I'll I'll throw a bit of a spanner in the works and I'll go with my heart rather than my head. You know, I'm younger than you, I'm more naive and more hopeful. So <laughs> I uh, I threw I threw a Murray prediction in there and I now feel incredibly stupid. Um but there we go. I did it and I did it. On the record, thanks to you, so there
0: it is. Excellent. And if you wonder where this prediction was, about four hours ago uh, on Twitter, and if you don't follow us on Twitter, at Tennis Podcast is where you need to be. And first of all, why don't you follow us on Twitter? So uh, correct that immediately. But yes, Catherine was forced into making a prediction, believing that I would then follow and make one myself. But no, I didn't. Um, I just let Catherine say Murray in four, wasn't it? <laughs> and then... That didn't it happen. It might have
1: been. I, my, mem- my memories got, got foggy. It, it, I, it, it, might, it might have been Murray in four. I, I, can't, I can't exactly remember what it was. It was something like that. It might have been Rafa in three, or it might have been Murray in four. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah,
0: it was Murray in four. And I certainly said that it would be uh, straightforward enough in terms of sets for uh, Rafa Nadal. I have to say, I, yeah. I did not expect... the the performance that he put on or the ease in which he managed to beat Murray in the end. And let's be honest, the the truth is the conditions were absolutely perfect for Rafael Nadal. If he was to create an environment in which to play a tennis match, centre court, Philippe Chatrier court, Roland Garros, hot weather, sun beating down, ball jumping off the clay over the head of his opponent, that would have been just about what he would have ordered.
1: Yeah, I think it's difficult to uh minimize the impact of the conditions today on the you know I'm not making any excuses for Murray we didn't watch the whole match ball for ball but it, to me it looked like an in- incredibly disappointing t- I mean he wasn't in the match was he but I, I think uh for the extremity of the scoreline I think the weather um played a large part in that and, and will do again on in on Sunday's outcome in my mind. How
0: big a deal was the physical fitness of Andy Murray having gone through two big five set epics in the rounds before against Philip Kohlschreiber and Gael Monfils? He did mention afterwards that he was it was perhaps a match too far for him and frankly, you know, if you're up against Rafael Nadal, it's the last thing you want, isn't it, to feel just even two percent short of hundred percent fit.
1: Possibly, but I think if that was a factor, I think it was more in the mind, the the knowledge that to have any chance of beating Rafa on clay, you have to feel like you're going in at 100%. And if he felt like, oh, I'm a bit tired, in his mind, he would think, right, well, what chance do I stand if I'm I'm only at 98%? I don't think in actual fact it looked like physicality was a huge issue. I mean, the match wasn't competitive enough or long enough for us to know whether that was an issue really. So I suspect if that did play a part... It played a part in Murray's mind, but but we don't really know. I mean, it was all about Rafa, wasn't it? We don't really know what was going on with with Murray physically or mentally because the whole match was about Rafael Nadal.
0: Well, anybody who's ever seen me play tennis will a know that I like to cheat and b that I like to make excuses when I lose. So I'm going to make a few excuses on Andy Murray's count, and it's all right, Andy. Don't worry about it. Just come to the grass. This is this is much better. It's beautiful out there at the moment. Blue sky, beautiful green rectangle of. Court glistening in the sunshine, and it is an absolutely joyous place to be. And Andy Moe is the defending champion, so he'll be here in just a, a day or so's time practicing on that and getting ready to defend his title. And then Wimbledon just a week or two later, so plenty to look forward to at the Queen's Club. But we are left now, Catherine, with Rafael Nadal against Novak Djokovic in the final. Djokovic having Got rid of the challenge of Ernest Golbis, who really was a revelation throughout the course of the tournament, wasn't he? But again, you thought maybe Golbis might push him a little closer than he did. Four sets, though.
1: I certainly thought he'd push him. Further. Well, you thought he might get a set as well. Let's, you know, let's put your neck And I was right. Well. Yeah, yeah, well, quite. Uh, but uh, it was disappointing that he only decided to show up in the third set because he really... I, I wasn't predicting him to win. But I certainly thought it might be more of a contest than it was because it did feel too little too late. I don't think many people watching all it didn't feel like the crowd when he did start to make that comeback in the third were really thinking the comeback was properly on. I mean, Djokovic got frustrated enough to, to lead us to believe that maybe he feared the comeback was on. But a, a, dis, a disappointing effort, I think, from Gulbis, but a fantastic tournament overall, no doubt.
0: My absolutely favourite interview that I've read all two weeks of the the French Open was uh, this morning with Gunter Bresnik, the coach of uh, Ernest Gorbis, somebody that I I knew many years ago when he coached. I think he coached Stefan Kubek many, many years ago. And uh, and he said, Ernest has got no chance. (laughs) And this is his own (laughs) player he's talking about. And he told Ernest this as well. And apparently Ernest uh, likes to hear that sort of honesty. He also said, uh, you know, why was it in Nice that he had to get somebody to go and get him some new rackets because he'd run out. Why didn't he just bring more? Gunter Bresnik said, well, if he brought 20 rackets with him, he'd break 20 rackets. So that's why. Uh, and no wonder Goran Ivanovic likes Ernest Gorbis so much. They, they are very similar and, uh
1: they are on the same wavelength, I think is probably how you'd put it, politely. Could you it? imagine
0: a night out with Ernest Galbus, Marat Safin and Goran I don't,
1: I don't want to. Galbus is very suspiciously, he always gets asked questions. I mean, he supposedly turned over a new leaf and he's all about, I think his quote in the press conference was hard work and dedication. He's all about that now. But he does still get asked because of his reputation from the past. He gets asked frequently about his victory celebrations of an evening and his his response invariably is it's unbroadcastable, so <laughs> I don't think... But, but you have to say, to
0: he is making a proper fist of his career now. I don't I don't care what he does in his spare time, quite honestly. I think he's the sort of spirit that needs to enjoy life and do it his way. I, whatever way that is, is up to him, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, he, he's extremely... Fr- I mean, he's fascinating, frankly, because he answers... A, there's no side to him at all. He answers a straight question... <laughs> Uh, with a straight answer and um, he he speaks very frankly about how the 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 turning of the page came with reflection about uh, he didn 't think he was able to be happy either now or in his future without knowing that he 's given his career the greatest shot he can. Well, what fantastic you you 'd love to impose that sort of foresight and perspective on a number of players who have who have squandered opportunities. With their talent in their career, and thank goodness, in one of the interviews he did in in Paris, you know, so, somebody asked him. Well, many people asked him questions about, you know, his. His sort of battle to to um, reach this stage in his career where he's taking the game seriously, and he he stopped and he said, "You know, I'm only 25. You know, you're talking, <laughs> you're talking like I'm sort of over the hill and past it, and and just squeezing in a bit of success in my later years." He's 25 years old. He's people are peaking at 27, 28 now. He's,
0: he has been around a long time, though. That's the the has. feeling, though, isn't it? Because. I remember the first time I saw him play was beating Tim Henman at French the French Open. Open. And Tim 2007? Henman retired in 2007.
1: It was that year, wasn't it? That was his last French Open match, lost to Ernest Goulbis. I mean, so he was,
0: he was 18 years of age and he looked about 12.
1: He did, but it, funnily enough, I think he looks a bit older than 25 now. He's certainly he's wise for his years, perhaps not in, in, in all his views, shall we say, but he is nonetheless... Um, a pleasure to have on the tour without doubt
0: yeah absolutely and we're looking forward to having him here at the Aegon championships in a, a couple of days time alongside grigor dimitrov thomas burdich Stanislas vavrinka late wild card andy murray the wimbledon champion joe wolfred songer they're all coming it's going to be great isn't it and dominic Tiem, my favorite young austrian player who's uh, uh ernest gorbus's best mate
1: is he yeah they train together is that a good thing i don't know
0: I think it is. I think it's a very good thing, yeah, absolutely. having
1: having talked at length about how wise Ernest is, maybe that is a good thing.
0: Yeah, Okay. Well, we'll we'll go with that then. Now, the final in a couple of days' time. We'll talk about the women's tournament in a moment or two, and the final there between Simona Halep and Maria Sharapova and the players that have made names for themselves over the course of the week. But the final, Novak Djokovic who's beaten Rafael Nadal four times in a row now against Rafael Nadal. And Djokovic was so close, so close to beating him in the semifinals last year. I think he led 4-2 in the final set. It's the one he wants to win more than any tournament on the planet. Can he do it, Catherine? Will he do it?
1: Oh, Why do I always have to go first? Crikey. Um There's so much on the line, isn't there? I read a tweet from Christopher Clary of the New York Times earlier saying the the three, I mean, there's awful lots else on the line, but the three things on the line are Nadal's ninth title, which is, I mean, we all know how incredible a feat that would be, Djokovic completing the Grand Slam and the world number one ranking. It's just to have that much on the line in one tennis match is...
0: So the winner is world number one?
1: The winner is world number one, so I hear I have not verified that I'm believing you, Chris Chris Clary.
0: At... I tell you what, I believe him yeah. more than the computer
1: exactly that's that's why I'm sticking it out there on the record without fact checking because because I believe him um so I mean, I think you're going to agree with me when I say I think we have need to have one prediction for one set of conditions and another for, i mean what's the forecast for sunday let's Let's address that. I think the forecast is fine and dandy for sunday in which case i'm going with rafa if the conditions are like today i'm going with rafa there we go
0: okay right and if they're not like they were today i mean come on this you're just this is just classic fudge this come on let's be on let's just have a prediction it's better
1: than classic silence which is what's coming from your end
0: i'm going with rafa nadal
1: no matter what the circumstances.
0: Yeah, he's won, he's lost one match in a decade and the one match he lost was against a guy playing out of his head and Rafael Nadal then took three months off with an injury because he'd got dodgy knees, missed Wimbledon, came out the next year, beat Robin Suddling in the final, thrashed him six four, six two, six four. He's unbeatable.
1: I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I'm. Predict- he's unbeatable I'm on clay Rafa-
0: at Roland Garros on that centre court in a French Open final.
1: But he has to lose some time. That, no, I he mean, doesn't. That's no, he doesn't. Absolute.
0: Well, I, I've got, you- got a question here. Somebody, we put questions out at Tennis Podcast on Twitter and one of them is, if I can just find it, will Rafael Nadal ever be beaten at Roland Garros again?
1: Well, he's 27. He's reached his ninth final. I believe that is...
0: Colin Cowan, by the way, is the one who's asked that, so we'll just name-check Colin.
1: He's 27, so let's say he retires. Let's be generous.
0: I think he's 28.
1: 28?
0: I think so. I think he's just turned 28 this last week.
1: We'll let it off. Okay, 28. Let's say he plays... I don't see him playing deep into his 30s, so let's say he plays to 31, say, which is possibly underestimating. But let's say 31, so that would be three more French Opens, which he'd need to win from now, which would potentially be, be 12 French Open titles. That just sounds unreal. That,
0: I, I remember uh, when somebody uh, told me when I was a kid that Bjorn Borg had won five Wimbledons and six French Opens, and I remember just thinking that sounded absurd. And then Andy Roddick, about two, three years ago, said that Doug Spreen, his longtime trainer, had told him when Nadal won his second French Open, he's going to win eight of these. And here he is, he's won eight. And, but, he's, and he could be about any, to win nine.
1: Is anyone saying he's going to win 12 of these, though? I've not heard it. Well, and I'm, say I'm
0: not saying he's necessarily going to play that many years. I'm not going to predict how many he's going to no, win. You're going to what I am going to s- huh? you're not
1: going to predict I anything. You're not going to predict anything. I predicted
0: Rafael Nadal will win the title. He'll beat Djokovic in the final. And, yeah, there you go.
1: Well, I'm agreeing with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate, really.
0: OK, well, oh, no, we can't have an argument. <laughs> I was looking forward to that. Uh, well, one of the questions we've asked on Twitter as well, at Tennis Podcast, is, is this the best rivalry ever, Catherine? This is the 42nd time that Nadal and Djokovic have played one another. And it is 22-19 to Nadal, but Djokovic is coming on strong. He's won the last four. Is it the greatest rivalry we've ever seen? I mean, everybody talks Borg and McEnroe. They only played each other 14 times.
1: For me, no. I don't think it's just about the numbers. Um, Certainly, if you looked at it on paper, there'd be an argument for for Djokovic and Adal. And I think, depending on your personal preferences in terms of what you enjoy in a tennis match, I think there's a legitimate argument for individuals, you know, each to their own. However, um, it's not...
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time.
1: that I either now or have in the past looked forward to the most. And I don't think it's still... I mean, there's a way to go with the rivalry, but I don't think in 10, 20 years' time it will be the most remembered, the most um, iconic rivalry from this era. I still think from this era it will be Federer and Nadal. I do. I do. Just because of the nature... I mean, I know... There is an argument to say that their uh, matchups have been quite one-sided, that Rafa wins their head-to-head quite convincingly. But still, I think in terms of an iconic rivalry from this era, from which, granted, there are many to choose from, for me, it's Federer and Nadal. I mean, that... The women...
0: Hold on a minute. The, the, the head-to-head is massively lopsided. Nadal's won three times as many.
1: I know, but I, th- I think... I think tournament organisers lick their lips the most at a Federer-Nadal match. Or Isn't that
0: because of, of the individuals still? rather than the rivalry? They yeah, are hugely the, popular uh, individuals.
1: individuals are part of the rivalry. I mean, my candidates... For, I mean, I think it's about match-up of playing styles, which, for me, I would pick Sampras Agassi in terms of a perfect harmony of of playing styles, creating creating just wondrous matches... Um, But also, it's absolutely about the characters. Uh, You know, I'd stick stick McEnroe and Lendl in there. I'm not old enough to remember their matches, but I've seen them play on the Champions Tour and I've seen how much bitterness (laughs) and venom there still is. And witnessing that, I can feel how that rivalry must have been back then. Uh, to, To witness it 25 years on to imagine what that would have been like at the time. It probably been amplified by 25, at least. I I think that is something special. And and from what I can gather, McEnroe had very similar with with Connors, which is why, for me, those two are probably more sensational rivalries than McEnroe and Borg, which is probably the more iconic, but the less gripping, because they... Loved each
0: other. I mean, and they still do. They talk, you know, John McEnroe's eyes glaze over with the mention of Bjorn Borg he's he reveres him he idolizes him even now he loves him he genuinely loves him and uh, and it's quite touching to see them together however I did see a YouTube clip today from 1984 between Jimmy Connors and John McEnough at the French Open where they both stood at the net and I'm only glad that the court effects could not pick up what they were saying to one another because it was not pretty
1: that's the thing, I've never seen that one firsthand because we've not had, certainly not in, in, in my era on the Champions Tour, we've not had that. But if it's anything like what I witnessed once in a locker room between Lendl and McEnroe when they were sniping at each other like kids who had who had, had a fight over some sweets, then, then I, uh, I can only imagine. And I do think uh, that adds a little something to, you know, you hear stories about how they'd sledge each other when passing at the net. You know, that might not be the most pleasant thing, but... It's
0: pretty funny. God, it yeah, it for a tense match. It does, yeah. It does make for a tense match. Now, let's just find out what our listeners think, because uh, not everybody agrees with the idea that uh, Djokovic and Nadal is the greatest rivalry ever. Uh, same as Catherine. Uh, Yusuf Salah says uh, Federer and Djokovic. His... his personal favourite why? because they both play aggressively incredible levels and there's often unexpected winners there's a lot of shot making when Djokovic faces Federer I I actually like that matchup as well
1: I do too in terms of a match match to watch I would choose Federer-Djokovic over Federer Djokovic, Nadal, personally,
0: which is just a war of attrition. Uh, no, I mean, that's unfair. There's still wonderful shot making, but I believe because their retrieving ability is so extraordinary, it's like two blokes just well up in the ball against the wall.
1: Yeah, the shot making comes after more of a prolonged, <laughs> prolonged rally than it does with uh, Federer, Djokovic. I, yeah, I, I like that match up. Again, it's not going to be the most iconic of this era, but in terms of of watchability if that's a word which it definitely isn't on reflection uh i do, i like that one
0: i like watchability uh it's almost as good as a winningest player on no, the no, circuit no.
1: that's that's not even a question mark <laughs> that isn't who said that
0: american people
1: <laughs> were american people called brad gilbert
0: yeah well there's actually thousands of them listening to this right now who are all cancelling their subscription to the tennis podcast because we're making fun of them a little bit sorry everybody but you know i also don't know what a clutch play is
1: oh you do you just you just don't like the. Expression. i refuse to accept it no, yeah. I, we we don't embrace that expression here but we do we acknowledge that it, it unfortunately exists
0: yeah we all think we know it all us brits but uh you know Feel free to unsubscribe. Uh, Stuart Critchley is not agreeing with us at all. He says that uh, Nadal and Djokovic is an epic nearly every time. He also says in the past, though, uh, John McInerney and Jimmy Connors was a great combination. And and I agree with this because of McInerney's serve and volley, great serve. And Jimmy Connors had the best return in the world of the time and uh, made for a great... uh, Contrast in styles there. Uh, Dean Gargano points out uh, Edberg Becker was an excellent rivalry, and in fact, they played three Wimbledon finals in as many years between 1988 and 1990. Two of them won by Stefan Edberg.
1: And a total contrast in characters as well, there. Utter contrast. And yet, they really like each other too. Yeah, do they? Yeah, they do. Do Oh, good. Do you know, they played
0: each other here the first year I worked here in 1996. They played each other in the final, and it was Stefan Edberg's final year as a tennis professional. And Boris, I think he's another one a little bit like McEnroe with Borg. He just reveres Edberg. He has huge respect for him.
1: Oh, that's really nice to hear, because they are very different characters. Just thinking as you're going through that list, the other thing which I think, for me, makes for a... A heated rivalry or certainly a very interesting rivalry is the match-up or the clash between natural talent and flair and just workman-like workman-like well, well still ability I'm not suggesting well again I'm going to throw McEnroe and Lendl out there you know Lendl didn't have the natural ability of McEnroe he eat absolutely everything out of what he had and for me that was a really interesting clash with with McEnroe who you could say it all in terms of skill it all came a lot more easily to him than it did to Lendl you know Lendl was famous for for eking everything out of out of himself that he, he had to give
0: indeed super grand 22 says McEnroe and Connors uh Chris Goldsmith uh has a shout for Steffi Graf and Monica Seles. Now, that was a cracking rivalry. 1992, they played each other in the French Open final. I think it was something like 10-8 in the final set to Seles, and then they had the rematch a, a couple of weeks later in the Wimbledon final, and Steffi Graf absolutely thrashed Seles. Fantastic uh, era that was. And then MJ Hilliard says, the ones that are the best are the ones that have a bit of spice and hatred added to them in other sports, um, He's uh, Carl Lewis and Ben Johnson. And uh, he thinks that Federer, Nadal and Murray and Djokovic are far too friendly.
1: Well, not too friendly. I mean, too friendly in, in the respect of perhaps those heated, heated rivalries, yes. But, I mean, it, it has its benefits in other ways. I mean, they're a, they're a classy bunch at the top of our sport at the moment. Um, And that's something to be thankful for. But, yes, possibly at the expense of those truly heated rivalries.
0: A lot of people are shouting out for Borg and McEnroe, understandably. Ended 7-7 in their rivalry. And the one, of course, that everybody remembers is 1980 with that incredible tiebreak. Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi, what a rivalry that was. And Ian Stone, uh, who is a presenter of the Arsenal podcast that we listen to the Tuesday club what a podcast that is
1: it's a cracking podcast Tuesday club feel free to to say on air that that the tennis podcast is your favorite podcast by the way it's a reciprocal reciprocal thing
0: yeah and we quite like Arsenal just because of them don't we
1: speak for yourself I think (laughs)
0: Okay, Uh, Gareth Griffiths says uh, also Sampras and Agassi because of the contrast in styles. And, you know, you can really understand it. But Ewan McQueen says, for me, I don't care about the fact that it's one-sided, but Federer and Nadal. 2008 Wimbledon, greatest match of all time, closely followed by the 2009 Australian Open, uh, arguably two of the greatest matches ever. And it got casual fans involved. And I can see the point.
1: I, I think there's an argument for that and there's an argument for that being the benchmark almost. I think if you went out onto the street, you know, we are self-confessed tennis geeks, you know, we're students of the game. If you went out on the street, people that, you know, watch tennis every now and then and ask them who the greatest rivalry was, you know, maybe the older generation would say Borg and McEnroe, but I think the younger generation would say Federer Nadal, without doubt.
0: Yeah, I know where you're coming from there. The women's draw has been fascinating this year um, for the breakthrough of a couple of players, most notably, I think, Garbin Muguruza, even though she ended up losing to Maria Sharapova in the quarterfinals. Her victory over Serena Williams and the manner in which she pushed Sharapova and backed up that big win were really eye-opening and just 20 years of age and great character, really exuberant character, and hopefully somebody that can build on that and become a big star.
1: Yeah, I think it'll actually be quite ironic if the old stalwart... I mean, she's not old, but relatively the old stalwart Maria Sharapova ends up winning this tournament, which I am predicting. There we go. An unsolicited prediction. I'm what, disagreeing. What I
0: Simona Halep, extraordinary player.
1: Oh, she is. She is. I just think... Sharapova's not going to let her win I just I don't think Halep will crack I I think it will be a decent match I just think Sharapova will find her way over the finishing line come hell or high water Um, but anyway as, as I was saying before I Produced an unsolicited prediction. <laughs> uh, I think that it will, would be quite ironic if Sharapova won because this has very much been a tournament not about the Sharapovas and the Serenas or even about the sort of middling generation of the Radvanskas and certainly not the Azarenkas because she's um, unfortunately out with injury. It's very much been about the Mladenoviches and the Muguruthas and the Haleps and um,
0: Eugenie Bouchard, second time in a row that she's reached a Grand Slam semi-final after the Australian Open.
1: Absolutely. And the only um, semi-finalist that had also reached the it, essentially the most consistent player of the year so far, which for a 20-year-old is quite something. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we it, there seems to be a, an onslaught. Of the, you know, last year it was Sloane Stephens and Laurel Robson. Now we've got Bouchard, Muguruza, Mladenovic. There seems to be a really strong charge of young players who really look like the real deal and really look like certainly Bouchard is is now producing very consistent. To, I don't is she into the top ten now. Has that semi final propelled her? I think it might have. I think she getting close at the very 10. least. Um, and it's it's very interesting. I think tennis needs it. I think the contrast between having Serena perched at the top, who's queen bee, been there. Seemingly donkey's years, and then all the other challenges behind her, nipping at her heels. I think it's very interesting. Donkey's years, There's a good saying, isn't it? She, she'd love that. If she heard that, I'm sure she'd look <laughs> at me
0: fondly she'd love it (laughs) yeah sure Uh, well that's just about all I would suggest uh, from the tennis podcast uh, for this installment I think we'll come back though on uh, Sunday night Catherine shall we after the uh, after the finals and find out who was right because tomorrow it's Simona Halep against Maria Sharapova and we've predicted different winners of that you've gone for Sharapova I've said Halep And then we've got uh, Nadal against Djokovic, and we've both gone for Nadal. And so we'll chew the fat in a couple of days' time. We'll look ahead to the Aegon Championships, the grass court season here at the Queen's Club, with Grigor Dimitrov, who's just arrived last week and has been playing on grass every day for about seven days now. Uh, Leighton Hewitt's already in town. Stanislas Vavrinka gets in tomorrow. Ross Hutchins is running the show, and the sun's shining, and it's a
1: lovely place to be. The sun's shining for now. That's. that's <laughs> <laughs> it's going to stay like that. Hey, should we just talk do? A, about these things. Let's just do a
0: couple of questions before we finish from uh, people who have sent them in, listeners to uh, at tennis podcast. And here is a question from Ben Smith: Do you give Djokovic more or less of a chance of beating Rafa now than you did at the beginning of the tournament? I give him less of a chance now than I did at the start of the tournament. What do you think?
1: Uh, For me, I don't think it's changed. For me, I gave Rafa the edge just at the start of the tournament and I give him the edge just now.
0: Paul White says, uh, why was Murray so bad? Was he just flat because of his previous five matches or was there more to it? He seemed disinterested. I think that's a load of nonsense. Sorry, Sorry, Paul, I don't think he was disinterested. I think he was a bit exhausted and I think he was getting a bit of a beating from Rafa on the down and, you know, it's pretty hard to... Look jolly when all that's going on, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I certainly don't think it was disinterest. I mean, Murray rarely looks jolly at the best of times, so I I think I'd struggle to look anything much more than he looked getting that kind of thrashing. Um, So I'd be interested to see the transcript from his press conference to see how he reflects on it, because, as I said, I think it's quite difficult to analyse having just watched it.
0: It is indeed. Well, that's it for another edition of the Tennis Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back in a couple of days. Talk some more then.